Welcome to the Dance Floor Podcast. I'm Lauren Johnson, and on today's episode, I talk with Alan Michael, a professional opera singer. We met through dance, which is how I've met so many very cool people. When my husband, Louis, and I did a ballroom program through the Michigan Opera Theater for the artists in residence at the Detroit Opera House. He's got an incredible voice, which is worth listening to on its own, but we also talk about opera for beginners, the life of a performer, and what we can do to make the world a better place as artists and as people. Hope you enjoy. Alan Michael, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast with me today. I'm really excited to talk and catch up with you, so welcome. Thank you for having me. You have a very special program that you're involved with at the Detroit Opera House. If you could kind of start off by telling me a little bit about that program, other than that it's called Artists in Residence, I don't actually know that much about what that involves. Pretty much with every opera program, you have almost like an apprenticeship to the professional world or the traveling professional opera singer. It's a step between those who's graduated from college, grad school. It's a, another opportunity for people to, or singers rather, to further their education and training, continue to hone their skills and become better and more polished performers so that they can go on into the life of a traveling professional as you see the likes of Morris Robinson, uh, Rene Fleming, Richard Leach, actually, as a matter of fact, uh, was a traveling professional. He is a director at the Michigan Opera Theater Young Artist Program. So it's also good that we have someone who's been there, traveling professional. When I say the traveling professional, I meant like the career of being the opera singer at its highest point. Okay, so this is sort of like the goal. Once you're an opera singer, you want to be a traveling opera singer? Is that sort of like the end goal? Yeah, because you want to travel to different venues around the country, around the world, because you have venues such as the Met. Everyone wants to sing at the Met. Right. (laughs) Everyone wants to sing at HGO, San Francisco Opera, Lyric, uh, that's in Chicago. And then you have the uh, Royal Opera House overseas. And then you have La Scala. So you have all these huge opera houses that you want to have a contract with them every year. Right away, you were like, okay, well, after you get your degree or your graduate degree, and before you become a traveling opera singer, I'm like, what is college like for you if you know out of high school that you want to be a professional opera singer? For me, It's a little different, but for the average singer that's coming out of high school, they would study music performance or vocal performance, rather, and they'll take that degree and further it with a graduate degree in vocal performance. You don't necessarily have to be a vocal major. Like, I wasn't a vocal major in undergrad. I was a composition major. And I did my undergrad at Morehouse, where I was a music composer. And for some, for others, you don't even have to major in music, contrary to the belief. It's all about the work and the knowledge. So everybody's story is different. And I know you hear this all the time, but me wanting to have you on as a guest for the podcast is a little bit self-serving in the sense that I just wanted to have your voice on my podcast because (laughs) you have a very amazing, even just your talking voice is so rich and incredible. (laughs) Thank you. Were you always singing from a young age or did did you go through puberty and you were like, oh my gosh, I have this amazing gift now and I have to become a singer? (laughs) Well, um, I didn't sing as a kid. I played piano and I played trombone for numerous years. But what happened was I was 12 years old and my voice had changed overnight, like the snap of a finger. You just wake up and you have this like adult man's voice. (laughs) (laughs) 
it was funny because I think weeks prior to that, me and my grandmother had that talk. You know, um, my grandmother was like, well, you know, you're going to start, you know, growing hair in places. I was like, oh, Lord, this is getting awkward. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> your voice is going to, you know, drop a little bit. It's going to get a little deeper. <laughs> little did we know, <laughs> you know, things are going to start to change. And don't freak out. It's a part of life. You know, and I took it with a grain of salt. All right. Two weeks before my birthday, actually. So this was in March. Okay. I told my grandparents, all right, good night, I'm going to bed and thought nothing of it. So next thing you know, I wake up the next morning and literally my grandmother's cooking toast, eggs and the little sausage patties. I remember this. It's crazy. Crazy. I remember <laughs> So vividly. I know that's like so specific, right? <laughs> I remember saying good morning and we both looked at each other in like this as- amazement. What's wrong with your voice? I don't know what's wrong with my voice. I don't know. <laughs> it's almost and, like you had like a Darth Vader filter on or something. Right. And I'm thinking maybe I'm getting sick. Maybe I'm, you know, getting a cold. The next thing you know, you know, I get to school. Oh, man, I'm happy. You know, I want to show my new voice off to everybody while I had it because I didn't know how long I would have it. Now, if you can imagine like this, this little kid who's 12 years old and is four, maybe four, eight, four, seven with this voice. Everybody thinks I'm joking. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not joking. This is what I woke up with. The week went on and my voice, was, it just stayed. It's just so weird that it happened overnight. I just love the <laughs> idea that little Alan Michael just like went to bed one night. The voice fairy came and then you woke up and you were like a man. <laughs> right. So even then with the voice I had, I did not even think about singing. That never crossed my mind. But only until like ninth grade. When I got in ninth grade, I went to high school. It was a magnet program, performing arts. And in order to be in a performing arts program, you had to take one year one full year of chorus and I went to the uh, choir rehearsal that day of choir class the first day in ninth grade and all the kids laughed at me because my voice is so different and I hated it oh I stopped singing I was like no nah, forget this uh-uh didn't finish the other semester and I was like well you know what I'll just figure out a way how to get that second semester in or maybe I don't have to show up to class or something like that but it was it was crazy I hated it isn't that so funny how as children we're so terrified of being different kids are cruel man it's rough <laughs> And then what got you started singing? Did you find a way to fill out that second semester or did you have to go back to chorus again? I had to go back to chorus again. You know, by this time, I'm a senior in high school. I'm thinking, okay, we're all 17, 18 year old young men and women. We're mature. We're not going to laugh at somebody's voice because it's different. So optimistic. So optimistic, right? Little old me. (laughs) (laughs) And just on cue, picked up from where I left it at and kids laughed. I remember the biggest revenge I guess I had was that everybody was required to audition that year for all state choir. And they pretty much, I guess, quote unquote, picked the best singers out of all the kids that auditioned. Right. And so out of my entire school, which was a performing arts school, remember, I was the only one that made it. Oh, wow. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Laugh now. That's amazing. <laughs> and and it's crazy, too, to think that, like, what if you had been able to take another elective? Do you even think that you would be singing today? No, I would not. Wow. I mean, you have a lot of um, elements that make up opera as itself. You have those um, orchestral accompaniments, different languages. And um, we have Italian, German, French, um, English are the four main. And then you have also Russian, Czech, that we also perform operas in that language as well. How difficult is that when you're being approached with a new piece of music that you have to learn and it's in Russian? How how do you approach that as a professional singer, learning a song in a completely different language? Well, first thing you want to get with a, a coach. A, a diction coach or a language coach in order for you to grasp all the nuances of said language. 
So, uh, for instance, we did Eugene Onegin two falls ago here at the Michigan Opera Theater. And I've never spoken Russian. I've never sang Russian ever in my life. But we did have a Russian coach that we'd be sent to every week or once a week or twice a week, however many times we needed to go see her. Through her teaching us, all right, this is how you say the phrase. This is how you pronounce these words, ingraining that uh, language so that we can tell that story. It's tough. So I have kind of a three-part question on that then. What is the hardest language to sing? What is your favorite and what is the easiest? So, I mean, because I, I, your favorite and the easiest might not be the same. Do, do we naturally go and say, well, English is the easiest because that's the language that you speak? Or is English diction kind of hard? English is probably one of the hardest languages I have to sing in. Wow. Because this is the reason why. All right. So when I'm out there on stage, when I'm out there, maybe um, in front of people performing, doesn't matter where I'm at. If I'm singing, usually I'm singing a song that mostly everybody knows if it's in English. That's my biggest fear because words are so hard for me to remember. I, it's so hard for me to memorize words. And opera lyrics are like so intense. They are. They are. But I think it becomes very difficult for me if I'm out there singing the Star Spangled Banner. Take that for instance, which I did mess up, by the way. I was in uh, grad school and they wanted me singing for the college basketball team. Ooh, I messed up so bad. What did you mess up? Did you mess up the lyrics? Did you say them wrong? And the rock is regular. I, I, <laughs> I just drew blank. And because my English language is, or the English language is my first language, and it's pretty much my only language. Right. I knew that when that blank came up, I was like, oh, what's the words? What's the words? I knew contextually what it was. I was supposed to say, it sounds something like this, or it consists of something like this. My brain is so smart that it starts to plug in other words <laughs> that mean the same thing. And then when I got to, and the rock is regular, I was just, <laughs> you know and i was singing it in an operatic style oh that's amazing it was i was like man maybe no one knew i messed up because <laughs> everything was just so operatic i love that so is that sort of your motto when you forget the lyrics to something is like when in doubt just sort of like mumble it's usually if it's in english i'm going to think of another word to replace that word but still say the same meaning so if i'm singing some enchanted evening you may see a stranger, you may see a stranger over there looking at you. That's not the words, right? Well, that's the same. But it's <laughs> the meaning. The it's the meaning. Right. It's essentially the same message. Right. So we're getting the message. Same message. <laughs> so that's the only time I get nervous when I'm singing in English. It's like, oh, my gosh. Because if I'm singing Italian, odds are no one would know if I messed up the words. What then, not your favorite, but what's the easiest one? Italian. To sing in, and it sounds authentic. So does that then make it also your favorite, or do you have a different favorite language to sing in? That's pretty much my favorite. Um, you'll start being known for, okay, well, Alan Michael sings Italian rep and French rep. Okay. Right. So if they have a German opera, that's like, mm, he may be, I still may be in consideration. However, if I build, start to build my career singing those two languages, I'll be further down on the uh, recommended list. So are you saying it's almost better to specialize rather than sort of sing everything? It would probably be less taxing if you were the specialist. Interesting. Okay. Your worst language is going to be have to be just as good as your first language, which just means more hours in the gym. You know, if you have those hours to dedicate, go for it. 
It's weirdly enough uh, very similar in the ballroom world. So a lot of times when professional ballroom dancers are setting out to compete or even just teach, they put a lot more focus into just one style. They might teach all of the styles uh, to their students, but when they're competing, they put the focus into one style. Mm-hmm. A lot of times as artists, we find ourselves kind of going not on a narrow path, but on a very specific path. Would you agree with that? Or do you feel like it's kind of hard to put yourself into that box? Mm, as a creative, we are members of the art. That means that we create. As creators, we don't like to be boxed in. Being aware of what you do well and what you don't, or in other words, being cognizant of your strengths and weaknesses, is not necessarily putting yourself in a box. You understand the things that make you stand out. So you continue to hone on those things so you can continue to differentiate yourself from the next person. Because in the arts world, there will be competition and we do compete in order to get a lot of our jobs, especially in opera. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just saying that I'm aware of my strengths and I'm doing everything that I can to make them better. Those strengths, most importantly, are going to be the things that separate you from everybody else. I love that. But I love the way that you articulated, you know, you don't have to necessarily think of your specialty as a box. It's, it could just be a way that you're highlighting or showcasing your strengths. I think that's really powerful. Yes. That's what's something that we all have to, you know, just be aware of where we fit in and displaying my artistry the way that I do it is something that is so unique that no one else can do it the same way. I love that. I think that's incredible advice for anyone who's a performer and artist in any way. That's incredible. So I wanted to kind of get your advice for people, again, dancers, singers, artists, whatever, and how you get ready to perform. Because I feel like as a singer and as a dancer, whenever you're putting yourself out in front of an audience, you are sort of opening yourself up uh, to this vulnerability. I wanted to ask you, is there anything that you do to distract yourself or sort of stave off the nerves? Things that I do... They never work. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you feel like at, at some point you just almost have to accept that nervousness is a part of performing and just be like, oh, I don't know, like you just have to ride that wave, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I discovered that the reason why you get nervous is because you care. You know, you care about what you're about to go out there and do. You know the work that you put in and you care that you do the best that you can because it means so much to you. Being an artist is one of the hardest paths to take. And to sacrifice so much to finally put yourself here. And now it's showtime. And also, you do kind of want to show people that, hey, you know, I haven't been wasting my time. You know, this was a good idea that I've chosen to take this path. I know you wanted me to be a doctor. I know you wanted me to be a lawyer. But let me show you what makes me happy and how much this makes me happy and how it can make other people happy at the same time. It's that care that makes you wake up every morning and do those things to get better, right? It's all the things that led up to this moment on stage when you're just about to walk on. So when you get out there, look at everybody in the face. You make sure you catch every eye in that audience as much as you can. And then you just simply say, thank you. So that's what I do. I go out on stage. I try to look at everybody, everybody, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to showcase my skills. Thank you for this opportunity. And now the show begins. It's interesting that you talk so much about connecting with the people that are there to watch you perform, because I feel like that is a huge part of what you're, eh, not to get too hippy-dippy about this, but that is kind of <laughs> what maybe we're trying to do as artists is we're trying to give something that, that people can have a reaction to. And the, the funny thing is, is it never stops. Like uh, Lewis and I, our students 
tell us all the time, they're like, oh, well, you're professionals. You don't get nervous. Or, oh, you guys have been doing this for 15 years. You don't get nervous. You said it perfectly. When you care so much about something, it the, the nerves don't go away. It's because you care. You you actually take pride in what you're doing and showcasing and, and you want it to be special and you want it to be unique. Oh, yes. I think the day that I get on stage and I don't feel that anymore, that's when I know my time is up. Yeah. And I guess other ways that I go through out the day, if I have a performance that day or that week, this is what I try not to do. I don't drink. I don't eat anything that's going to be like dairy filled, like milk or cheese and stuff leading up to that performance. Interesting. Yeah. Anything that could be detrimental in any any way to kind of get in the way of my hard work, I try to, you know, save it for later. You know, those would be the celebratory things. You know, you grab a beer and pizza after, <laughs> you know, that production is done, you know. All the cheese and all the alcohol for the winners. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> so um, I've had routines. I know a lot of opera singers, they get into a routine, you know, especially the day of. And my use, my past several routines, one my, one routine used to be you eat a bag of M&Ms before every time you go on stage. Why? I don't know. I think what happened was I just got superstitious. Oh, I think it's more I, of like, it's not like a nutritional thing. It's like a luck thing. Oh, no. Yeah, no. no, no. <laughs> I thought you were about to tell us that there was some sort of like secret you know, ingredient in M&M's that made your voice like really powerful. Oh, look, milk, chocolate. I just said I <laughs> said dairy. Look at me. But yeah, you get superstitious because if something, if you have a great performance, you try to think about, oh man, what made me have that great performance? Uh, maybe it was the M&M's. All right, I'm gonna get her back in M&M's for the next performance. Yeah, because that was the reason, obviously. <laughs> obviously, obviously, right? And like athletes that like wear the same socks to every game and like stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. Most importantly, Preparation for what I do for opera, definitely. I try to have everything memorized by the time rehearsals begun. I can continue to now evolve that character of who I'm playing with others surrounded around me and see what their takes are of this production and see how we can blend our ideas together. And then once we do that, it's tech week. And uh, that's dress rehearsals, tech rehearsals, stuff like that. Once we get to that stage, I'm very comfortable. Now I just have to solidify the staging and how everything is going to look and sound and feel inside the theater. Once I get that and it's opening night, I'm good. I've been doing it for so long now. This is almost just like rehearsal. You don't think about it anymore. I'll tell you one, one quick story. What happened last year in Onyegin, the same production. It was the third performance. And sometimes we have between four to five performances. Usually the middle performances are the ones where you kind of just get a little too relaxed. You know, it's human nature. You're getting comfortable. Right. You're getting so comfortable. Oh, I know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on stage and all of a sudden I'm singing. I'm literally singing on stage in the middle of a phrase. And then I finish that phrase. As I'm finishing that phrase, my mind goes, don't forget the words. Don't mess up. Don't mess up. Ah, it's Rockets Red Glare. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, <laughs> all over again. <laughs> and the next phrase is about to hit. The conductor, he cues me in. My brain goes completely blank. But. The words are coming out of my mouth just effortlessly. Wow. Wow. That's because it's so ingrained in me. I've did so much studying and I, I prepared so much that no matter what I think about on stage, it's impossible for me to get distracted from doing my job. 
That's crazy. Now, see, in dance, we would call that muscle memory because that's, I mean, that's the whole point, right, is that you mm-hmm. prepare for weeks and months and years, whatever, to get ready for this one thing that you're going to do so that your body is like, you know, the highway hypnosis thing so that hopefully your body takes over. But at the yeah. same time, I find that concept like very scary. <laughs> you know, like we put oh. all this work into making it subconscious almost. And then when it works, it's almost kind of terrifying. Oh, it is. It really is. And the source of the whole thing of what the core of this whole preparation is constant repetition. The more you do, the more you do, the more comfortable you'll be. If you tell me to go right now, give a speech on the steps of, I don't know, the White House, not this White House, but the White House like four years ago. Uh, (laughs) Yes. And, you know, Obama is right there. He's just like, all right, go ahead. Speak to us. And it's my first time doing it. Oh, my gosh. What? I am going to be freaking out. Just a hot mess. Hot mess. Oh, saying ums and uhs and and wiping my head, <laughs> looking up to see if I'm making sense. But if it's like my 200th public speaking event, when someone says, hey, you know, can you speak here or there? If I'm at the White House and I've spoken to the White House maybe 200 times before, oh, I'm easy. I'm cool. You know, I'm still a little nervous because I care about what this message is and how it's going to be presented and perceived by everybody else. But oh, I've done it 200 times. Right. And that's comforting in itself, knowing that, OK, wait, I have something to rely on. Them other 199 times, you know how great they went? OK, great. Yes. And there's at least something familiar that you can kind of fall back on, because I feel like that's the thing, you know, we talk about, like, the nerves don't necessarily always go away, but that sense of familiarity is, I feel like, at the end of the day, just does give us that level of comfort that makes us feel a little bit more relaxed. Exactly. So you're, you're kind of talking about, you know, how you do tech rehearsals, how you do dress rehearsals to get ready for a performance, um, all of this preparation that goes into it and collaborating with other people. So you've got, obviously, the behind the scenes people like the, the lighting, the stage crew, props, and then you've also got other artists and other performers that you're working with. How important do you feel like it is to work with partnerships in the arts? Extremely important because... You have co-workers, you're going to have different co-workers every time that you see a different production, especially in my field. For instance, we've had four shows my first year and two or three shows my second year here at MOT. And every single one, I may have seen the same person maybe twice. Oh, wow. Okay. Maybe one time. And because you work with so many different people on a regular basis, having the skill to work with other people is another skill that you're going to have to develop when it comes to partnership. Because unlike, you know, you and Lewis, when you all get together and you dance together, it's like, oh, wait, I know, I know your body, you know my body. I mean, you all are married, too. So you know each other even more than the regular dance partners would. Yeah, as intimately as possible. Right. You know, I know which way you're going to move. You squeeze my hand right there. Oh, I already know what you're about to do. Right using my hand for balance. Oh, I got you. I got you for that support. When it comes to opera and you see so many different people so many different times, you kind of have to be open-minded and be vulnerable for people. We, we all do to kind of just dance with each other. Yes. You know, as opposed to, well, no, I do it this way. And so you should know I do it this way. But even though you don't know me, you should know I do it this way. But <laughs> if you don't do it this way, then we can't work. It's like, oh, no, we got to stay away from that. Right. So what we do is, oh, I don't know you. You don't know me. 
but we have to find out a way to make a beautiful, perfect tango through rehearsals and, and the preparation is so vital because you all are working together for one common goal. Do you ever wish that you could have the same crew, the same orchestra, the same director, and all of the same actors every time? Like if you had your own like opera company and you guys <laughs> just put on different operas, would you ever want to work with the same people consistently all the time? Or do you really like this idea of every time you start a new production, you're going to have to almost start from scratch? I like the diversity. You know, I like keeping me on my toes because that ignites a different challenge which excites me. And it's always cool to see other people's perspective because fresh ideas, that's all we do. We adopt each other's ideas and we take them and we carry them on to another job or another production, which can help bridge gaps of clarity to for the audience. Um, because there are offers out there that uh, everybody knows, right? And a lot of people don't really need too much uh, clarification of what this means or what the meaning is. Right. And then again, there are offers out there that are a little convoluted, you know, more complex and they're trying to figure out, okay, what's the plot about again? I've, I've been very lucky. I've seen you perform songs as like previews several times, but I've gotten to see you in two performances. I saw you in Candide and I saw you in The Grapes of Wrath. And mm -hmm. in Candide, I really enjoyed that one, but it was one of those ones where Lewis and I would keep looking at each other and go, wait, what is happening? And that's one of the things that I find fascinating about opera and something that I feel like for you as the performers, especially for your average person that doesn't maybe isn't familiar with the background or the story, you guys as actors on stage do a really excellent job of telling us the story when we don't understand the lyrics or what the lyrics are talking about. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I do like having so many people, so many different people or different cast everywhere I go. You know, I do like that. I embrace it. Do you have a favorite opera? Do you have a favorite character that you have played or would like to play? And then do you have a favorite aria? Like, are, are could those all be answered in the same question or are they completely three separate ideas? Probably two separate ideas. Okay. <laughs> My favorite opera first is La Boheme. I love that because that's the one that I feel like for people that aren't really into opera, they could list that one. It's like, okay, just name an opera. Like, that's one that people know so well. Oh, yeah. And it's a great introductory opera for someone who's never seen one. Very cool. Uh, my favorite aria and the favorite role I would like to play, they're the same. It is King Philip and Don Carlo. Now, see, I've never heard of this one. It's one of those, uh, those synopsis that is kind of hard to get if you don't have the right people doing it. Okay. It was based off the, the conflicts in the life of, of Carlo. So King Philip sings an aria, Ella Jamai Mambo, pretty much saying that she never loved me. The um, the woman or the love interest that he's into, he's a king. And of course, he loves her. He's so into her, but she doesn't love him. And so she goes off and runs off with another guy. I think it's a tenor. Are the girls always like ending up with the tenors? Usually. usually <laughs> and always running away from us. Or... <laughs> Wait, are, so are you a... Is it baritone or what's what's your title? Bass or bass baritone. Yeah. Is that so, the deepest uh, one? Like like if you just on a quick sidetrack, if you run us through the scales, like how, what's deepest to highest? For just normal voices, soprano, mezzo, soprano, contralto, counter tenor, tenor, baritone, bass baritone, bass. Okay. So you're on the two, the two lowest ends of the spectrum. You're like the deepest of the deep. Okay. 
Right. And then you have, of course, divided sections within each voice part. And so so then King Philip, is he a bass then? Yeah. So he's a he's a bass baritone. And so the difference pretty much is between um, just vocal ranges. A bass usually has the lower notes and more profound lower notes. They're more present and resonant in his lower register. So in other words, the bass baritone shares both the bass and the baritone register. Certain roles call for certain tessituras. And what that is, it's the frequency at which a person sings certain notes above his vocal range. Wow, I've never had to actually explain this to somebody. (laughs) Honestly, like it's the same in dance too. You know, someone asks you a question that you know the answer to, but you've never actually had to say it out loud because you're always working with other dancers. So it's right, like, exactly, I'm going you know? like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so because you're a bass baritone, do you feel like you're sort of doomed for the rest of your life to play a villain? <laughs> you just always have to be uh, the bad guy. Yeah. Although you weren't really a bad guy in the Grapes of Wrath. I was the guy who kicked them off their property. <laughs> yes, them, that's I'm... true. But see, now, when I saw you in that performance, I've never read The Grapes of Wrath. I've never seen the Henry Fonda movie. So I was very stunned. You get breastfed at the end of the show. That's like how the show ends. Yeah, I was surprised, too. Or were you playing two different characters? That's the thing. I was playing three different characters. At least you don't always have to be the bad guy. In that sense, you were sort of just like the sad guy. In that moment, yes, people took pity on me. But the two parts I played before, uh, people was like, oh, who's this guy? I played the police officer. (laughs) <laughs> who told pull over pull over what are you doing this yeah. part i'm like oh my gosh so usually the for the base role is going to be i'm going to probably play more evil monstrous roles or uh villain roles father roles or the role of a leader or the role of a wise man and then you don't have to play the villain every time that's nice Right. You know, sometimes nobility, sometimes the bad guy. But I'll never play the lover. (laughs) I feel like maybe, you know, because you have this background in composition, maybe you could write an opera where the girl runs away with the bass baritone. I should. You should do that. (laughs) I'll go see it. I think that's that would be really nice. And it would be unexpected and it would be original. Exactly. I would love that. Uh, I'm coming to this from a very uneducated standpoint about this form of art, but I I really enjoy it. I I don't necessarily feel like you have to, you know, know about the, I can't even remember what you called it. And you just said it. It starts with the T. I keep thinking Tesseract, but that's from the Avengers. What is that thing that you were just describing to me? Tessator. Tessator. I'm just going to call it the Tesseract (laughs) because it makes more sense. You don't have to know all of this like deep background stuff about opera to enjoy it. So what would your advice be to people who feel like opera is for wealthy people that can afford to go and see these expensive shows and dress up? How would you get people to get into opera that maybe feel like it's it's not available to them well no opera definitely is not just for the elite or the upper class or the rich for everyone because each story is a story about life and art is an imitation of life that we live every day opera is just another way of expressing how we see life and different scenarios that we can learn from and different experiences that we can enjoy Um, Opera is an experience that we can hold hands, we can laugh together, cry together, uh, love together. And it's one of those special art forms that really encapsulates so many things all at once. Sing, dance, uh, language, culture. And, And now that we have so many different contemporary operas now that are shedding light on current events as of today, 
so that now that we don't have to watch an opera and try to see, well, okay, the plot was this and that. Now, how does it relate to real life? Well, now that we have more composer, more modern day composers writing operas that now can shed a light on current events, such as Blue, an opera that I was in uh, that sheds lights on police brutality in America. So opera is just like another form of or another outlet of watching a movie. You know, you get to see a live, raw emotion of art itself being played. That's for everyone, literally for everyone. How different of an experience is it for you with an opera like Blue? Is it harder to work on an opera like that, or is it easier because you can relate so much to it? Both. Um, it becomes easier because we have people that you can share that experience with that's on stage for Blue, for instance. It's all black cast, and the shootings and killings of unarmed black men in America is something that we already was going through and something that we all already related to. Right just by being black. You know, you don't even have to go into a deep dialogue or discussion about it. You already know. You don't have to explain what's going on to your fellow coworker, the things that are going on in society, because we live it every day. You know, this is not just a, a incident that happened once or twice. Some people can just go home, you know, turn on the news, read about it, hear about it, watch it, and then turn it off and go to sleep. And they don't have to experience it, you know, but for us black people, we can't just turn it off. We can't turn away from it when we want to, because it's something that we live on a day in and day out basis. So when you come together for a production like Blue, you already know a glue or a bond that's already built, even if you've never met that person before. Mm -hmm. So those are things that make it easier, because what makes it harder is the fact when you don't have the resources to have certain people to talk to while you're reliving this traumatic experience through art. If you're gonna ask somebody to go there, go that deep and experience this all over again through an opera, through stage work, and if I'm gonna take myself there, I'm gonna need somebody to talk to afterwards. And um, I know I did a production of Blue, and we all talked about, man, you know, it would be nice to have a therapist we're reimagining and revisiting the fact that we are treated differently, you know, and we, when we put that into the forefront, it does something to us. And it affected a lot of us, you know, during production because it's embedded in us. The reality of it is that this is so true and nothing's really being done that much for us to have a different life, you know, because this stuff is continuously happening to us and it's forcing us to live in a place where we would just want to escape. But productions like those, they also shed light and educate other, other people who don't see it that way, who don't see our experience. Artists might think like, well, what could I do? I'm not a politician. I'm not in the government. How, how can I make changes? But to be able to use your art in a way that can affect people and that can show things from a different perspective, I feel like is, I don't know, maybe like the highest form of what art can accomplish. And, and that's, that's really beautiful. Yes, yes, yes. Like I said, it's, it's a beautiful opportunity for us to educate as many people, especially with the contemporary operas that we do and the, the operas that I'm personally involved in. It's always great to have that window to continue to shine light just on the indifferences we have in America. Uh, as you see what's going on right now, 
And then you have people who uh, are getting mad. Well, why haven't you said anything? Why haven't you posted this and posted that? I get it. And you said, what can we do to, you know, have changed this? And as black people, I wish that we had the answer, but it's kind of like kind of have a solution for, for something that somebody else started. I think the most important thing for everybody to do is to go out and use the same energy that we are when it comes to posting, when it comes to sharing our emotions, whether it's through protests, whether it's through riots, whether it's through a simple remark or response on social media, is to take that same energy to the voting polls. Yes, yes, yes. Because what's going to happen is as long as we have those people that are making these laws, that's making sure that none of us progress over the years and through the years, as long as those people are in office, we can protest. Mm -hmm. I think the voice of the people is heard at its utmost at the voting polls, because now that we're not only saying what was happening and we're not only bringing it and sharing awareness to what's happening to us, but now we're, we're taking action. Because if that prosecutor put somebody in jail who you knew that wasn't supposed to be in jail, you have the right to go and vote that person out. Voting is, I know, mostly it's like a macro level system. Who's the president of the United States going to be? Who's the vice president of the United States, secretary of state, all those things. I get that. That's important as well. However, if we want to see the difference, we have to work from the inside out. We have to start do our due diligence and looking at the people that are or running for office in our states, in our cities. You know, we're talking about mayors, talking about governors. We're talking about those people, those officials who are going to be in our city, our states, making those laws that's restricted to our states because that's what's going to affect us first before anything the president says is going to affect us individually. we got to put pressure on the law officials to either make a change or we vote them out and we put people in office who will be beneficial to everyone, including blacks. I think your advice of, okay, here's something tangible that you can actually do. You can you can vote and start at a small level. Don't wait to have a political opinion. Do you even have to call it a political opinion, even just a social opinion? Don't wait to have that opinion until it's every four years when it's a presidential election. Start small, start in your community. And I feel like that's how we can make those changes. I, th- I think that's I think that's incredible advice. Yeah, because before we start looking at political views and before we start butting heads about you know, whether politically, if we agree or not, we have to agree, is this person going to be for human rights, right? Right, right. So it becomes not a political view, but a human view. I think even that is really powerful because I think so many of us are like, oh, I'm not political. I don't get it or I don't care. But it, it like when you say it's a human view, I, I feel like that just changing the language of that from politics to no, this is how I want things to be in society, I think that is really what could make people more willing to participate. Definitely. We need that same energy, you know, at the voting polls. You know, I love this energy that we have right now, that everybody's being aware. And I love seeing my white brothers and sisters, you know, uniting with us. I love that. We're doing the first thing that needs to be done. All right. Bringing awareness to it, bringing how fed up we are with everything that's going on. That was the cause, and now here's the effect. We make sure that we put people in the office who's going to be beneficial to everyone. I don't understand how people have changed this rhetoric, but when people say Black Lives Matter, we're not saying only Black Lives Matter. Because where I have so many people, I've seen that says all lives matter, which is true, but don't try to change the rhetoric. Don't try to exclude us as you always have done. You know, you know exactly what we're talking about. We're saying Black Lives Matter too. As well. Uh, 
it's crazy to me that you even have to clarify that point. Like it's it, just like it's yeah. ridiculous that you have to I, clarify that. It stuns me. But yet I think we're doing a good job right now. The next job to do after all of this commences is that we go and we vote. This is the year. Let our voices be heard in the voting polls. There's so many resources now to if you're if you're confused, if you are getting a lot of your information from legitimate news or from social media and and you and you don't really understand some of the issues there's a lot of websites that I use that I really like there's one I I side with it's either .org or .com um mm-hmm. You can look that up where you just you literally just take a questionnaire and, and and it explains the issues to you from a very non-biased perspective. You know that we have so many resources about voting that we have no excuse to, to not get involved and be active and outside of this burst of support, keep it going, like you said, and keep that energy moving forward. Exactly. It's up to us to share with those who don't know about these resources, you know, share that with them, let them know that there are resources out there. It's our responsibility to let others know about that as well. One of the things that I've talked about with friends over the last few episodes is how are you coping with the quarantine as an artist? How does it feel? It sucks, man. It it really does. It's taking away a lot of motivation and a lot of hope. It's taking away a lot of that because we're looking at the future of opera and where it stands right now. You know, how do we regroup? How do we come back from this? And not knowing if no one would be able to sing and gather together you know, for another year or so. But there's a lot of light out of this. So It's historically proven that a lot of times when things are hard in society, when, you know, either like through the Great Depression or wars, the arts is sort of what brings people hope. And, and, yep. and, and oddly enough, what people even who are suffering financially end up spending money on. Not escaping their life, but I think having a hope for things being better. What would your advice be for people who are lacking that motivation? What's gotten you through some of those hard days? Finding a new skill. If you don't feel like honing the skill that you already know and love because of the predicament that we're in right now, I get it. Find a new way how you can leave a mark in the world with your friends. Because you know the amazing thing, the, the amazing thing about people, we adapt, we can do anything. We've made it through some of the craziest times in world history. We're just resilient. That's something I can do that will bring not only fulfillment to my life, but to other people's lives. And you got to find that. The advice I guess I would leave is just find a way to continue to inspire that person or whoever or that audience. Find a way to still continue to inspire because that's where your heart lies. I know you were just using it as an analogy earlier, but I, I really truly believe that you could give a speech on the steps of the White House and we would all be there for it. We would all be listening. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time out today to to be on the podcast and, and talk about, you know, your perspective as an artist. Hopefully you'll be on many episodes in the future. And again, for anyone that wants to find Alan Michael, listen to his music or see some of his creative efforts, you can check him out on the Michigan Opera Theater social media. He does a lot of the videos, obviously. Obviously, his speaking voice is incredible, so you could only imagine what his singing voice sounds like. (laughs) So again, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been really cool. Thank you so much, Lauren, for having me. It has been a pleasure. Yay. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to Alan Michael as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Again, if you want to check out his stuff, you can find him on social media through the Michigan Opera Theater. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can be up to date on future episodes. And also shoot me an email at hello at thedancefloor.info if you have some opinions on what we've talked about or if you have an idea of what you'd like to hear on episodes in the future. 